All right. Open with me to 1 John chapter 3. We have chapter 3 here, and uh, as we press forward here in this, this awesome letter of assurance that the Lord has uh, left for us. Okay, starting in verse 1, we're just going to go through uh, this, this first passage, three, or three uh, verses here, 1 through 3. Uh, so as always, take heed of the perfect, inerrant Word of God as I read this morning. Chapter 3, verse 1, reads as follows, says, What kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for the, the perfect and pure sacrifice of your son Jesus. And that great hope, that great assurance that, that awaits those who believe in him, that there will be a day when, when he returns and that we will be like him. Father, help us to, to continue to bring glory and honor to your name on this side of eternity as we eagerly wait that, that hope that is without uncertainty. And we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. So verse 1 here, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. It, when John uses, you see, he uses these two words that are, they come through to our English as see and behold. And we see these two words here that uh, he'll use right before he's about to say something, um, in a sense, profound. Uh, and so what it is, is it, intend, is it intended for us to, to direct our attention towards what he's saying and here specifically is the Father's love, the Father's love for us. And so the word indicates uh, to ponder or to study. He's saying to ponder and, and study what I'm about to say here, which is the love from the Father. Uh, it invites us, as Spurgeon says, to, to pry into this secret. So he's saying to pry into this secret, pry into this, this mystery of the love the Father has for us. So peel it apart, each and every layer so in this letter here, uh, as we I keep recalling and, and bringing to our minds here uh, how, he, how John uses that word children, uh, that, that term of endearment. So we see that again here, uh, children of God. And on the other hand, you see Paul, if you're reading Paul's letters, uh, he uses kind of a similar phrase and he uses sons of God, sons and daughters of God. Uh, Children of God, sons of God, both are true. Uh, the difference here is uh, Paul, when he speaks of sons, is, is something of a legal term, uh, which describes our relationship with God through Christ. Uh, and so Christians have therefore been declared sons and daughters of God. Uh, they have been adopted into the family. Remember last week there in verse 29, been, has been born of him, ganao, the Greek born, which means to become the parent of. Uh, and so we are adopted into the family 
of God. And so that's what the, that legal term that Paul likes to use there uh, in his letters. And then uh, also describes uh, the origin, birth, family relationship. Uh, when it comes to uh, John, speaking of, of children. So that's the difference, a legal term, and then also then the, the origin uh, when it comes to the, the, using the word children. The likeness, essentially. The likeness of the, the family resemblance. So think of it this way. Have you ever had a child born into your family, uh, whether it's in your own family or immediate family, and you go to see that child, whether in the hospital or home birth, or they've come home from the hospital when you go see them at home, and and one of the first things that you do is you start looking at the, the features and the resemblance of different family members, uh, whether it's their parents or you know, they look like you know, Uncle Louie with their hairline or whatever it may be. Right? You start picking out these features of, of that child, and so you see the, the family resemblance, the likeness. And so, so it is with those who are children of God. As Christians, we are part of the, the family of God, and so we should have something that resembles the, the family likeness. So how did it come about that we've gained entrance into God's family? How is it that we've became uh, those who will inherit the family promise. Well, John, he, he tells us here in, in verse 1, he says it's because of the Father's love. Because of the Father's love. And you remember back in John's Gospel, 316, famous verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so that, that great verse describing that love that the Father has. So he says here, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Johnny places that, that word Father uh, in the Greek in a, in a key position uh, to, to emphasize the family relationship, the family resemblance that, of those who believe in Christ, and that love that comes from the Father pours out through all those who are in the family. So God himself here, he's saying, God himself is the source of that love for us. And what a marvelous love it is. It's, it's a love of such magnitude that it can't even be measured, cannot be put into uh, human words that would suffice on how magnifying it is. So if you and I would have be living in the first century, say we're living in the first century at... Um, a Greek seaport, say Philippi or Troas or Corinth, and we're living in that area, um, and you're going about your business in the marketplace, wherever it may be, and then suddenly uh, there would be like a rustle or a stir among the people, and everybody would head down to the docks, and word would start to spread that there's a, there's a ship, there's a ship coming into town. People would move towards the docks, move towards that area, and they would look onto the horizon as the, the ship approaches. And then by the sails, the, the configuration of the sails, they could tell whether the ship was from 
that seaport, if they're from Troas or from Philippi or Corinth, what, what country, what nation that ship was from. And you'd hear people saying in the Greek, they'd be saying, uh, patapos, patapos. Which literally means, of what country? What country? Where are they from? You know, what new people are coming to visit us? What new things could we possibly learn? This is the word here, the exact word, patapos, that's translated here in verse 1, where it says, what kind of? It's a very unusual word that only occurs six times throughout the whole New Testament. And it gives off this, this nuance of, of surprise, of astonishment, of urgency, excitement. So he's saying, oh, what kind of love? What kind of love the Father has given to us? He says it with excitement. This is the word that the astonished disciples, they, they uttered when Jesus calmed the sea. Remember that? Back in, in Matthew 8. He calmed the seas. He said, what kind of man is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Notice that this love of God is, is, is wonderful and unique because it actually does come from somewhere else. It comes from somewhere beyond this world. It comes from heaven. It comes flowing from God himself. The love of God is broad. It is deep. It's marvelous. It's unimaginable. It's incomprehensible. It's boundless. It's endless. It's measureless. Those are just some words that don't actually... Describe the magnitude of God. We can try. It's like when Paul, he, he tried to measure it as well. Again, language for him as well forced him uh, to resort to the only standard phrases that were available to him. Back in Ephesians 3.18, it says, The breadth and the length and the height and the depth, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Puts that little clause in there that, that he's like, even, even those, those acronyms I used or those uh, terms I used, sorry, to, to describe the love of God still don't measure up. So he has to end with, it surpasses all knowledge. It surpasses all comprehension. It's like measuring the content of, of, of the sea with a teacup. And even that illustration fails infinitely short of God's love. So when we look at the cross, we look at the cross and, and Christ's sacrifice upon the cross, you know, we see a love that, that shrinks from, from no sacrifice. It invokes, it's, it's invoked by, by no lovableness of man's part. So nothing that we have done. It comes from the depths of God's own infinite being, his own infinite love. And so on the cross, we, we see a love that, that will not be extinguished. It will not be exhausted by sinfulness, but pours its treasures out on those who are unworthy. As Alexander McLaren describes, he says, it's like sunshine on a dunghill. This love, John says, has been given to us. And given to us that, that we should be called 
children of God. The meaning of this verb, uh, coupled with the, the tense John uses here, suggests that this gift cannot be earned, it cannot be bought, it cannot be withdrawn. So it's not a love that, that you and I can conjure up. It's not a love that, that you and I deserve. This love is a gift. It's a gift. God reaches down to us uh, unlovingly, though we are, in the midst of our sin. Jesus dies for us. Pays the penalty that we owe. God has given this love to us and has called each of us his children. All those who believe in Christ call us his children. God has given us the the honor of bearing his name. The honor of wearing the marks of Christ. God bestows this undeserved honor on us because of his perfect eternal love for his son. That perfect Trinitarian love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That the Father loved his son eternally gave him a people. The Son, through the love of of the Father, atoned for the people, atoned for the gift in which the Father had given him. The Holy Spirit then works that love, works that atoning work of Christ because of his love for the Son and the love for the Father. He works that atoning work into the people whom the Father gave to the Son. So this Trinitarian love that surpasses all understanding, all knowledge. Here, must one be, be so overwhelmed with this unbelievable fact that we are the children of God. John says, and so we are. And so we are. An honor far beyond anything that we deserve. What is what God himself declares us to be. He declares us to be children of God through his son, Jesus. Now, what an honor that is. What a, what a glorious thing in knowing. To function well as a Christian We must know who we are in Christ. No matter what problem you may be facing, whether it's now in the moment or or in the future, if you belong to him, you are his child. You are the children of God. You are in the family now. His family. But check this. The news gets even better. If they have that... I mean, that's a great, beautiful promise, and and that's beautiful news, but it continues further. It doesn't just stop there. And so, just as we were born only into uh, our immediate family, our our physical, biological family, we were born once into that family, so the new birth, which places us in the family of God, is a once-and-for-all, once-and-for-all event as well. We did nothing to to cause our physical birth. 
into our earthly family. Likewise, we had nothing to do with our spiritual birth. John, he, he speaks of this back in his gospel several times, but this is a reference in chapter 1, verse 12. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were, not, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. He says, but of God. Born of God. Born from above. Born in, and in, in adopted into the family of God. Adoption gives us the name of God's children. The new birth gives us the, the nature of God's children. You know, we're, we're by nature, physically born by nature as children of wrath. We're reborn into Christ. Uh, with the nature of, of, of being God's children. Adoption this is the, the legal act by which our Father places us into His family. Regeneration is the spiritual birth by which we receive the nature of our Father. Now think about all the popular religions of the day. Buddhism, it, the glooms of the, the present life and, and longs for the, the release of what they call nirvana, which is nothingness. Hinduism seeks to solve sin through the escape, escape from the, the wheel of karma via reincarnation. Who decides whether they come back as a, a tree or a styrofoam cup? Christianity, Christianity solves the sin problem. Christ solves the sin problem. Not by escaping into nothingness, not by reincarnation, but rather by the new birth. The new birth found only in Christ. That's why he says we are his children now. God's children now. People who are not God's children do not know God or, or recognize him as who he is. They don't recognize us as children of God either. They don't know why. They don't know why you wake up early and, and set aside a specific day. They don't know why you wake up on Sunday and, and, and go to church while the rest of the world sleeps in or goes and does something else. They don't know why you refrain from normal activity or, or recreation on Sundays. Or they don't know why you gather with a bunch of people and, and sing songs. They don't know why you listen to some guy talk for an hour. They don't know why you eat pieces of bread and drink juice together. They don't know why you celebrate the dunking of people in water. They don't know why you, you don't cuss or speak foul language or, or get drunk and do these other things. The world ought to scratch their heads when they look upon uh, someone who is in the, cho the, in the family of God. Again, it's not a call to perfectionism. 
There will be a change. Most of the world rejected Jesus at his coming. The world does not know the Father, so it should not be surprised to us that the world does not know or recognize his children either. The reason why the world does not know us, they do not understand, is because they do not know the Father. They do not know him. They do not know Christ. On a side note here, um, I talked about this on Thursday, those that were there on Thursday as we were going through Thessalonians, and, and I, I, I posed the question, what is the, the worst thing a Christian can do? And on this side of eternity, in the life in which uh, the Lord has, has given them, what can, what's the worst thing they could do? And this is just my own personal opinion. Uh, we, we gave different answers that all made sense. Um, I've landed on a, one of the worst things, if not the worst thing, a, a, a Christian could do is to marry an unbeliever. To unequally yoke themselves with an unbeliever. The reason why I say that is that person will never know you. They will never truly understand you. Now, obviously, the, the Lord can bring uh, an unbelieving spouse to saving faith, for sure. Uh, but there's a call to, to not be unequally yoked as we enter into a marriage covenant. That's the air show, so don't worry about that noise that's going on. <laughs> they wonder why you're not at the air show and you're here worshiping God. <laughs> John said in his gospel, uh, in chapter 1, verse 10, he said, Jesus was, not, well, Jesus was in the world, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, but they did not receive him. Right. That statement, that understanding, is, is baffling. It's really baffling when you, when you think about it. They had Christ standing before him, them. You know, many people came to saving faith, right? Most did not. They've seen the things in which he did. They've seen his, 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 the miracles. We'll pinpoint Judas specifically. Man. He walked, talked, and communed with the truth. With the living God. Gives more emphasis on, on that work within someone. It's solely a work of God. The majority of people missed who Jesus is uh, when he came to this earth because the world does not know Jesus. Because they do not know, they will not know us. When we enter into the family of God, uh, the world no longer knows us anymore. Now, obviously, we can have friends that are unbelievers uh, we can have family members who are unbelievers, and they'll know us to a certain extent. But they won't truly understand. They won't truly get why we do the things we do. 
So don't be surprised when, when, when the world doesn't understand you, when the world doesn't get you. In verse 2, John refers to, to his readers who are, who are God's children as beloved. Beloved. Uh, though we are currently children of God, all of the implications of what that will mean for us uh, when we see him face to face are not realized in this life. We can try to ponder and, and comprehend as much as we can, but we won't know until we see him face to face. This is what John means when he says that here. What we will be has not yet appeared. Now we are children of God, but it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Again, we are limited to speak in the language of, of earth. Uh, on that day, we will, we will learn a vocabulary that far exceeds in anything we can comprehend. With respect to, to our, our future state, John affirms both our, our ignorance and our knowledge. He affirms our, our ignorance, uh, as he says here, what we will be has not yet appeared. So there's, there's an ignorance of, of not knowing exactly what we will be. And then he affirms our knowledge since we have the assurance that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. So there's something we don't know, but we do know that there's something that we don't know. And it's greater than what we can even comprehend. Did you comprehend that? <laughs> All our hearts' questions are answered in the statement there when he says, we shall be like him. We shall be like him because we shall see him. We shall see him as he is. The fall will be moved away. We'll see him who he truly is. And that is why we'll be able to worship him perfectly in that time. We'll know Fully, as we are fully known. As Richard Baxter said, he said it very well. He says, my knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. But tis enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be like him. And what a great, joyous statement. What a great fact. So at this point here, John, he shifts to talk about what we will be. And in order to understand what we will be, as, as much as we can understand what we will be, uh, we have to start by, by who we are. Who we are. Again, that statement, children of God. Children of God. God is not only interested in making us his children, he desires for all his children to bear the family likeness, the family semblance. Yeah. Did you know that, that every single day of your life as a Christian, God is, is silently, sometimes very loudly, but always silently at work in you to create in you the mind of Christ, to continuously cultivate your mind 
into the likeness of Christ. Always. It doesn't stop. He's at work to, to help us learn to think like Christ, to talk like Christ, to act like Christ. God is about making all of his children conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. So our, our full and final spiritual inheritance is, is in heaven, and it awaits the return of Christ. It awaits when he calls us home. That inheritance is ours now. Now. Even though we have not yet come into possession of it, it's still ours now. Through Christ. We're the children of the King of Kings. The children of King Jesus. We have not yet come into our, our full inheritance. It's ours now. It's secured in Christ. That's given us the, the guarantee the guarantee of that inheritance through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that seal. But we don't come into to the full inheritance until he returns or until he calls us home. Paul, he says in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, that Jesus will, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So we receive a body able to, to understand and comprehend the glory of God that stands before us. So then therefore we'll be able to purely worship Him for all eternity. Just think about that. By virtue of, of the incarnation, Jesus retains His humanity right now in his, his glorified, exalted state. Think of perfect humanity. The God-man on the throne in heaven. One day we are, we are going to be like him. Not in any divine status. But sinless in every way. One day we, we will see Jesus, he says, as he is. We'll see Jesus as he is. We'll see him in, in all his glory, in all his majesty, in all his perfection. Think about all the beautiful sights that you have seen in your life. Think about that. I mean, I've seen uh, some beautiful sights. The faces of, of my wife, my children, family members. I've seen a, a, a beautiful bride adorned in her wedding gown. Walking down the aisle. I stood in the midst of the hills in Ireland for a brief second. Stood on the sands, the Siesta Keys, Venice Beach, driven Route 66, old Route 66, from Vegas to Santa Monica. Seen it snow in the desert. Seen some of the most beautiful sunsets right outside that door. 
But each of those, each and every one of those, simply pale in comparison. They cannot hold a candle to the face of Jesus and all his glory and all his splendor. Uh, Peter, he got it right when he said about Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. This great love for Christ that surpasses all knowledge and that great hope of knowing that we will know him, we will see him for, for truly who he is. So in verses 1 and 2 here, John, he's told us what we are. He told us what we are. He says we are children of God. Children of God. Purchased and redeemed by the Son. He has told us what we'll be like. What will we be like? We'll be like Jesus when we see him face to face. Now John tells us here in verse Three, what we should be now. He says, and everyone who thus hopes in him, being Jesus, purifies himself as he is pure. And so to, to keep us from floating away on this some cloud of mysticism, John reminds us that, that our future destiny helps us to know our present duty. If we are to be like Christ in eternity, and we are called to, to, to act like Christ now. We're to set our eyes on the things from above, not on the earth below. As Jonathan Edwards once said, he says, to stamp eternity on my eyelids. Have eternity stamped on our eyelids. In other words, seeking first the kingdom of God and, and his righteousness. In all things, in our homes, in our jobs, how we interact with one another here as a congregation, how we act, interact with the entire body of Christ, how we interact with unbelievers. The reason we can and ought to seek holiness it's because we have hope. We have hope. Hope that is without uncertainty. Hope is, is a very, very important word. The uh, English, English word for hope doesn't even shake a stick at what the Greek word for hope means. Our English word conveys like this wishful optimism. Right? Like, I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope it doesn't do this or that. We're having no certainty in it whatsoever. Earthly hope is often gratifying. And if I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow and it doesn't, it's gratifying. But it's never satisfying. Because it might rain the next day when you have something you have to do outside or whatever it may be. In the New Testament, hope means a settled certainty. Settled certainty, guarantee. A confident expectation based on the promises of God. And notice carefully the, the object of our hope. That is the most important thing. The object of our hope says hope in him. In him. That is, our hope is, is fixed upon Christ. Fixed upon Jesus. Hope is a settled fact for Christians 
It's provided for us by Jesus, who himself is our hope. As Hebrews 6.19 says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner places behind the curtain. Enter into the Holy of Holies. We can enter in now to the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, because of Christ's sacrifice, him tearing down the curtain that enters into that holiest place. Hope is future-oriented. John's hope here is of the the coming of Christ, his return, and the fact that, that Christians will be conformed to his image, will be brought to completion. So what should we be when, when Jesus returns? Shall we be when he returns? Holy in character? Conduct? Not perfectionism. Seeking holiness. We know that we are the children of God. We know that we shall be what we shall be. Just conform to his image, his likeness. Now he says, in light of all of those things, what well, we should be today. Holy in character, holy in conduct. Is that true for us? Is that true for us individually? Is that true for us in our family unit? Is it true for us congregationally? <clears throat> Think about your life. Are you walking in holiness and godliness? Are you purifying yourself day by day, moment by moment, renewing our minds through the word, having our minds renewed through the word? Notice the pattern here. We are to purify ourselves, look, as he is pure. As he is pure. So the pattern or the the gauge of our purity today is is not uh, our our family members, it's not our spouse, it's not other Christians, but it's Christ. He alone is our pattern. So everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, Jesus, is pure. Notice that our incentive for, for living a, a holy life is it's not rules, it's not regulations, but it's a relationship with Christ. Is the standard. Our incentive for right living is based on, on, on a higher love, a greater devotion to Jesus. When you love Jesus, you, you desire to be like Jesus. He is pure, He is holy, and His children desire the same thing. <clears throat> As Calvin said, our desire for holiness should not grow cold because our happiness has not yet appeared for the hope is sufficient the hope is sufficient his promises are sufficient our righteousness is not the ground of our hope nor is it our warrant to hope in Christ the only ground of our hope is Christ himself it's Christ himself So just something to, to, to press upon our minds here as we 
wrap this up. Verse 2 is, is a, a strong incentive to strive for verse 3. We're God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be when we see Jesus. But until then, this hope, this hope is, is the motivator. This hope is what should motivate us to live pure lives. To, to seek holiness. Think of it this way. <clears throat> Try to get this illustration right. Grayson, if someone hits a home run, what happens? What does that what does it, what does that batter do? It runs the bases, right? Yeah. It, it's when a home run gets hit, bases are in, right? I say, I say, I know that many in here enjoy a good baseball game, play baseball. Illustration wise, think Christ as our our designated hitter, right? When the home run is hit, right, you cannot be put out. You cannot be thrown out. You cannot be tagged out. There's zero danger of being called out. I know there's some rules in baseball here and there, but we're going to... But generally, from there on out, you, you run the bases, just like Grayson said. Home run is hit, you run. Christ being the one who, who, who did it all. Stood in the plate, took the pitch, hit the home run. Naturally, as the designated runner, what would you do? What would you do, What'd you do Grayson? As the designated runner, what would you do? Run, right? You'd run. Press forward. The home, the, the guarantee for home has been... Settled. It's done. The home run is, has been hit. So as Christians, we've had the workings of Christ on the cross imputed into us by the Holy Spirit. We're now sons and daughters of the Most High. We are now children of God. So this is calling now to to, to run the bases of the Christian life. To run the race with endurance. Not everyone's journey is going to look the same. Think about the thief on the cross, right? His faith in Christ was, was settled there next to him. Next to the, the Savior of the world. His path around the bases were, was very short. Right? But he was called home. He was brought home. Through the sacrifice of Christ, through his faith in Christ. Look at the Apostle Paul. Suffered greatly, but yet still called home. It's a guaranteed, it's a guaranteed inheritance because of Christ's sacrifice. So not everybody's path 
to home will look exactly the same. Those who are in Christ, those who believe in him, that inheritance awaits. It's a guarantee. So find encouragement. Find the peace. Find the rest. That as children of God, adopted into the family by grace through faith in Christ, you're not in danger of being thrown out. You're not in danger of losing your salvation. So he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus. A true believer is saved. A true believer is sanctified and is being sanctified. A true believer is safe and safe for all eternity. So as we enter into to communion this morning, I reflect on that hope. Reflect on that hope of Christ that, that what he did on the cross is finished. It is done. And gave his body, poured out his blood. So we eat and we'll drink in remembrance of him. Remembrance of that. And knowing that, that, that we fall short, but it is he, he alone, who sealed and accomplished the redemption, the inheritance, and, and adoption of his people. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of your son. Even as sinful people, unworthy, as you displayed your love to the world by giving your son Jesus. Father, I pray each and every person here this morning under the sound of my voice uh, finds comfort from your Holy Spirit in knowing that 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 great hope awaits, that hope that is without uncertainty, that great hope or uh, the only thing in which we should cling to for assurance and knowing that it is finished, it is done. Father, help us to live each and every day knowing that, each and every moment, each and every breath that you have given us on this side of eternity, that, that we do so in, in a manner that is pleasing to you, that we seek holiness and righteousness uh, through your son, Jesus, and that we seek to purify ourselves as he is pure. Father, I pray that you bless the elements of communion this morning. It's set aside here for a holy use and that we partake, that we eat and we drink in the manner pleasing to you with contrite hearts, with, with joyous hearts of remembering the hope, the sacrifice of your precious son. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.